Can I tell you something that happened to me this week? It's, uh, it's a personal story, and if you will pardon the personal nature of it, there is, I'm going to be heading somewhere with it before we get all done. Many of you know that I was raised in a pastor's home. I've shared that freely, and my mom and dad were in ministry for many years. My dad passed away in 2000, and some years later, maybe about 2005 or so, my mother married again, married a fine gentleman whose wife had passed away years ago, and he and his wife were in the church my folks had pastored in Alton, Illinois, uh, many, many, many years ago. And so they began courting, and, and uh, they married. Well, unfortunately, last weekend, Mr. Dean Copeland, her husband, he passed away. And so the funeral was this week, Tuesday, and visitation was Tuesday, funeral was on Wednesday. <clears throat> so obviously, I wanted to fly up to be with my mom in Alton, Illinois. It's just across the river from St. Louis. Right there, that's where the Mississippi and the Missouri River converge and come together. And so, anyway, I flew up. If you recall, Tuesday was the day I flew. That was the day of the storms here in Dallas-Fort Worth. So those of you who fly very much know how much fun DFW can be when, it, when every plane coming in got diverted to, you know, Shanghai or someplace else. <clears throat> so... It was one of those days, you know, if you've traveled much, you learn how to just chill out and go with it. You're going to get there when you get there. Well, I, I finally got there. Get my rental car, take the little 30-minute drive from the airport over, cross the Missouri River first, and then as you cross the, the Mississippi River, big old bridge into Alton, Illinois, as soon as you cross that bridge, it empties you right into the lower street that is there. And it's an old river town. Old, heavy on the old river town, built up in the bluffs up above, up above the river, their very wide Mississippi River. It was, it was old when we lived there. My dad accepted the pastor of a church there in 1965. I was about 11 years old. Go ahead and do your math. Get it over with. <clears throat> I was about 11 or maybe 12 years old, something like that. I was going to sixth grade when we moved there. I crossed the river. Tuesday afternoon, crossed the bridge, and as I came to the stoplight at the end, I looked up, first of all, as I'm crossing the river, this flood of memories began, began coming back. I spent all of my middle school, part of my high school years there, very formative years, very crucial years, and all this flood of memories began coming back, and so I stopped at the stoplight, I looked up at the stop sign, and it said Ridge Street, and I thought, you know what, that's not far. I've not been there in forever. That's not far from where my dad's church was. His church was on 6th and Spring Street. Came back to me. You know what? I've got just a few minutes here before I go meet my mom at the funeral home. I'm going to see if I can find that church. So I went off the path the GPS was taking me to get to the funeral home and I, I went up <clears throat> Started going up because you go almost straight up into the bluffs. Went up Ridge Street. I began crossing numbered streets. I went 4th Street. Good. This is a good sign. 5th Street. Got to 6th Street. And I got there. I thought, I think it's down this way. And I turned right. Went down just a few blocks. And there stood that church that my dad began pastoring in 1965. Let me tell you, it was a bad area in 1965. It's a horrible area today. It looks like crack houses everywhere. There's people 
slowly walking across the street, staring into your car to see what you're doing here, you know. And I'm thinking, this is not a good place to be. I probably need to get out of here, and I certainly shouldn't get out of the car. But I turn the corner, and the church is on a corner, and the side of the church is on this other street, and I pull up next to it, and again, flood of memories. Well, nostalgia took over. I wanted to go in. I had to go in and see it. I thought, if they shoot me, they shoot me. To live is Christ, to die is gain. <clears throat> So I got out of the car, and um, I saw toward the side at the back, there was a door with a light on. So I went up, and I, I knocked on the door, <clears throat> and uh, this delightful young lady, oh, looked to be 17, 18 years old, came to the door, didn't unlock it, didn't open it, but talked through the crack of the door, and she said, can I help you? And I, and I said, um, hi, I'm Dan, um, which meant a lot to her, and... <clears throat> My dad pastored this church 50 years ago, and, and, and I, I just, could I just go stand in the sanctuary for just a minute? I promise I won't be long. She said, I, cannot, I can't unlock this door. We, we have to keep it locked here. I'm sorry. I said, she goes, we have a daycare, a small daycare here. And I said, believe me, I understand. I said, that's okay. I didn't go into my story, but I said, I understand. So could I just look in that, that window that's right there? I, I promise I won't take very long. She goes, sure, you can do that. I went over to the window. And it was not a great angle to see everything, but I could see a little bit of the sanctuary, and it looked just like it did in 1965. So I had my moment. <clears throat> I turned around, went back to my rental car, and I'm just about to walk into the rental car, get in the rental car, and a lady comes out that back door that the young lady had been at before, and she says, sir, my daughter said, your dad used to pastor this church, and you want to get in the sanctuary. I said, Oh, yes, ma'am, but I, I understand the, the security you need to have. She said, well, please forgive us for being so tight with the security. She said, last week, a gunman got into the church and held me at gunpoint with the children in the room in the next, in the next room. I said, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. And I said, I, I really do understand. Again, I didn't need to go through my story, but I said, I, I really do understand, and I am so sorry. She said, but let me... Let me take you around to the, I'll take you around the front. I said, oh, would you do that? I said, I promise I won't take very long. It'll, it'll just be, I'll just be a minute. I, I need to be at meeting my mother at a funeral home, and I won't be very long. She said, okay. We began walking along the side of the church, and as we walked, we're just having light conversation. We come to the cornerstone, the, the dedication um, stone that's in there that tells when the church, that church was built. Well, it was, it was that it was built before my dad became the pastor, and it had the name of the man who was the pastor before my dad, and it said Alton Gospel Tabernacle, which is what it was called before my dad pastored, and it was a list of all these names of men who had been the board members, and I knew every one of them. I said, ma'am, I see this guy, this was Eli Greer, and, and, and this is Mr. Browning. I said, these men were on the board of this church when my dad pastored. I knew all of these men. Of course, they'd been gone for decades, and she said, well, wow, that's something, you know. <clears throat> You're old, so, um, which is basically what I was saying to her. So I said, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm remembering now that it was called Alton Gospel Tabernacle before we got here in 1965, but sometime before then, the name had changed to Spring Street Assembly of God Church, and, and I said, because it's obviously, it's here on Spring Street, it, it changed, I said, so what's it called today? She said, oh, well, the name changed again a few years ago before my husband, she said, became pastor of church. I said, what's it called? She says, today it's called Bethesda.
I said, you've got to be kidding me. And I stopped dead in my tracks. Now, you know, some people might want to make something of that. I, I, I don't know. For me, it was just a moment of full circle, coming full circle with 50 years later. It was really, I mean, so I'm standing there. I've, I've stopped, literally, because what she said stopped me. And I'm thinking in my mind, there is no way she's going to believe. <laughs> yeah, dude shows up. He pastors a church called Bethesda also. Right. There's no way he's going to believe it. She's going to believe it. So I said, wait here just one second. And I ran to my car because I knew in the bag of my, it, that I had in the car, I had a calling card. I thought, well, that'll prove it. So I got a card, and I came back, and I said, um, I don't know. And she wonders, you know, where did I go? Why did I run off? And I said, I don't know quite how to tell you this, but I said, ma'am, today I pastor a church in Fort Worth, Texas. And I said, and this is the name of the church that I pastor. And I held up the card. And, of course, we had our wow moment. We went on into the sanctuary, and it looked very much like it did in 1965. And um, two main sections, one aisle down the middle. They probably replaced the carpet. I can't remember. The pews had been replaced. The pulpit was the same. The platform was the same. The piano was the same. So you know what happened next. I said, I said, wow. I said, ma'am, I have so many memories of services. Seeing my dad standing behind that pulpit right there. Would you mind if I would play the piano just for a second. She said, oh, do you play the piano? I said, I used to. <clears throat> so I sat down, and I hit one note, and I could tell this piano has not been tuned since before the last time I played it. Really was wretched, truly wretched. But I sat and I played, Holy Spirit, come and fill this place. Bring your healing and your warm embrace. Show your power. Make your presence known. I began singing it too. Her daughter was in the room with me. And I started singing. The daughter got her, her phone out and started taping it. You know, and I thought, <laughs> I thought, not on this piano, girl. Don't tape that on this piano. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, come fill this place. I got up from there. Can I just tell you, if when you have a moment like that that's taking you back like that, it's just, it's, it's overwhelming. So I went and I stood in the choir loft. Well, that was the first time in my life I ever conducted a choir. And there were two pews there now. They were, had pews for where the choir used to be three. One had been removed somewhere during the years. And I stood right there in that spot. And I said, Lord, what a journey. Thousands of songs later. Hundreds of choir members later and singers and recording studios. Hundreds and thousands of songs later, and it started at 12 years old, I conducted that choir for my dad's services starting at 12 years old. And I conducted a choir, I think, every Sunday from that day till, oh, I just did it a minute ago. <clears throat> and it was quite an interesting moment for me. I went back down, I said, ma'am, I really need to go, and thank you for your time. And her daughter was there with her, and we stood and came down the middle aisle to, to go out the door. <clears throat> And I said, could I just pray with you before we go? And, and, of course, they were delighted. The church is actually called Bethesda Temple of Alton. In case you're going to fact check me, go ahead. That's what it's called. And um, 
I stood there, and as I was leaving, after we prayed, I thought, you know, Lord, this is, this is so astounding. So, Can I just tell you that in that experience, it was a matter of looking back over life, where we were and where God has brought us to today, and I could not help but think of the verse that we know so well from Jeremiah that says, I know the plans that I have for you. Therefore, you're good and not for disaster to bring you a hope and a future. And I began dwelling on the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And then I started thinking about all the times that I tried to abort the plan. I thought of all the times that I wanted to give up and was that close to giving up. And I was reminded of my incredible propensity to mess things up along the journey. I'm really good at that, really good at it. And then I thought of all the times that the enemy tried to sabotage the plan because to my knowledge, and I've shared this before, I've had three close brushes with death, three that I can point to that I, where I should have been taken out. One was involved a situation with my sister when I was 13 years of age. It was a complete accident. She and her husband had purchased a new handgun. She was simply showing it to her little brother. Thought it was completely empty. Somehow the gun went off and the bullet grazed my ear and went right through the wall. My sister stood there, turned white as a sheet, trembled and shook for the longest time. Then there was a time when I was on staff at Rockford, Illinois, 1973, just before I married Becky. And I was supposed to be on a plane, go on a plane to a small private plane with the pastor, Gene Whitcomb. And all of the board members were going to, flying to South Dakota to work on an on a, on a Indian reservation, a, a building a chapel there. And he said, Dan, I want you to go with me, and I, we're going to talk about this and this and this. And I said, yes, sir. Bring your bag. Uh, it was Sunday morning. He said, bring your bag uh, to church tonight, and you stay with the house with me and Shirley because we're leaving really early in the morning. I went home that afternoon, packed my bag, brought it to church Sunday night. And then somehow after that service, he said, you know what? I, I've had a change. I, I don't know. I, I think it'd be better if you'd stay here. I've had a change of mind about that. I want you to stay here. Well, they got up Monday morning, and they flew to South Dakota, and they worked on that Indian mission for all week. On Friday, they flew back, and that plane went down. And the pastor and all the board members perished in that plane crash that I was supposed to be on. And then I think about the time in 1993 when I was held at gunpoint in a hotel room in Mobile, Alabama, and absolutely convinced it was my last moment. But all of these years, church, I have to say, Lord, you've had a plan. Please forgive this personal testimony this morning. You've had a plan for my life, and I've seen it. I've tried to mess it up. The enemy has tried to mess it up. But all through it, you have been faithful. You've not only been my savior, my deliverer, but you've been my healer. You've been my provider, my comfort, my peace, my joy, my strength, my guide, my protector. Oh, God, you have done so much for me in all of these years. And that's just the stuff I do see. With all that fresh on my mind, I happen to be reading through the book of Acts on the return flight Wednesday night. All the flights this week, if you were on an airplane as I was, you know every flight was extremely turbulent this week, I think all across the country, certainly across the Midwest and down into Texas. I was reading through the book of Acts with all of this on my mind all of this experience and what all had happened. And something that I read stood out to me that I ran across. And I'm going to give you some background very briefly this morning. 
The Apostle Paul had been preaching in Jerusalem. He was in the temple. He had infuriated the Jews so much that they began to drag him to a place to kill him. And just before they lay, lay their hands on him, a Roman cohort got a hold of him. And then for the next five to six chapters, we see Paul is appearing before the Jews. He appears before the crowd, the high council. He appears before Festus, before Felix, and before Agrippa. In the next six chapters, we see Paul literally just defending himself for what he had been doing, which was declaring the gospel of Jesus. And he's telling his testimony and how he became a, a Christian and what God had done in his life through all of the time he'd been serving him. But there's a little phrase that as I was reading, sitting in the airplane Wednesday night trying to get back to DFW, that caught my attention. And I, I want you to hear this phrase today. And I, I'm asking the Lord to help me convey to you the impact that it, this little phrase, I'm sure I've read hundreds of times, that, that it, it had upon me Wednesday night in an airplane. And it's in Acts chapter 25. As I take you there, we're going to enter the middle of these court proceedings. And so let me try to lay it out for you. And then I have a couple of points I want to give you today before we go. Acts 25 verse 1. Three days after Festus arrived in Caesarea to take over his new responsibilities, he then left for Jerusalem, where the leading priests and other Jewish leaders met with him, Festus, and they made their accusations against Paul, who was back in Caesarea. And they asked Festus as a favor to them. They said, would you, would you transfer Paul to Jerusalem? Now, my Bible, and some versions have it, many do, some don't, have this little parenthesis right here, this little phrase that reveals their motive, why they wanted Paul transferred to, back to Jerusalem. It was because they were planning on an ambush to kill him on the way. So here's what's going on. Let's get it clearly. The, the, the Jews are asking for Festus to send Paul from Caesarea to Jerusalem. They're asking for, to let him be tried in the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem for desecrating the temple and for declaring and preaching about Jesus. And the diabolical plot that they have in mind about all of this gets revealed as we read the end of verse 3, the thing in parenthesis that I mentioned. So while this urging is going on with Festus, come on, send him back to, Jer to Jerusalem. All the while, they're planning on setting an ambush to kill him, to kill Paul. While they're urging Festus, there's this plot. And this plot that's going on, Paul has no idea no idea what's being planned for him. Neither does Festus. Has no idea. Nobody knows it except the people plotting it. At the same time that Festus is deciding how to deal with Paul, these guys are continuing their plans on how they're going to kill him. The only thing Paul knew was that he was defending himself before the courts at that time. Festus and Felix and Agrippa, as you read through all of those chapters right there. And though he was feeling the pressure, Paul was feeling the pressure of the court process, he had no idea what was in that little parenthesis that we just read? That the Jews didn't want to just drag him to Jerusalem to be tried. They literally wanted to kill him, and that was the plan. And it reminds me of this, church. Make no mistake about it. The plan of Satan is to kill you. The Bible says it clearly, that the thief comes only to kill, steal, and to destroy. And that is his plan. Sugarcoat it any way you want. Talk about it any other way you want. That is his plan. He's trying to destroy you. He's trying to destroy your marriage. He's trying to destroy your children. He's trying to kill your faith. He's trying to kill that baby, dear lady, that's in your womb. He's trying to kill. That's his goal. That's what he wanted to do with Paul. He wanted to kill him. 
And while Paul is defending himself and sharing his testimony to the courts of the land, he has no idea what the plan is that's being put in place for him. Look at verse 4. But Festus replied, Acts 25, verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was at Caesarea and he himself would be returning there soon. So he said, those of you in authority can return with me. And if Paul has done anything wrong, you can make your accusations. Well, about eight or ten days later, Festus returned to Caesarea. And on the following day, he took his seat in court, and he ordered that Paul be brought in. When Paul arrived, the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem gathered around and made many serious accusations that they could not prove. Paul denied the charges. I'm not guilty of any crime against the Jewish laws or the temple or the Roman government, he said. And then Festus, wanting to please the Jews, which means he's wanting to accommodate their request to him to send him to Jerusalem because they've got a plan, which means he's going to try to send Paul to Jerusalem. So Festus has no idea about the ambush. Paul has no idea about the ambush. But guess what? There's a God in heaven who knew exactly what was taking place. So watch this. Festus, continuing in verse 9. Ask Paul. Are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there? Trying to please the Jews who had requested that. But Paul replied, no. This is the official Roman court. So I ought to be tried right here. You know very well that I am not guilty of harming the Jews. If I have done something worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if I am innocent, no one has a right to turn me over to these men to kill me. And then... Here's the phrase, and it may not mean anything to you a minute until you let me explain it. He says these words. He says, therefore, at the end of responding to Festus, he says, I appeal to Caesar. Now, when I look at this scene, and I consider how Paul handled it, it reminds me of something that Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, where he said this. He said, when you're arrested, don't worry about how to respond or what to say because God will give you the right words at the right time. For it is not you who will be speaking. It will be the spirit of your father who's speaking through you. How many of you are thankful that God knows how to speak through you? So what Jesus was telling his disciples here was this. When you stand before the court and you're being tried for suffering for my sake, there's going to come words to you, to your mind, and come words out of your mouth that are not on the script. They were not in your plan. There will be words come out of your mouth that you won't even know when you said them, why you said them. And Paul, with no idea there's a plot to kill him, simply blurts out, I appeal to Caesar. And he had no idea even in that moment that those words were straight from the Holy Ghost. And as soon as he says those words, we go back to our text in Acts 25, verse 12. Listen to this. Festus conferred with his advisors. And then he replied, all right, very well then. You have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. Which means this, Paul's not going to Jerusalem, he's going to Rome. And just to prove that it really happened, chapter 27, verse 1, when the time came, we set sail for Italy. Rome is in Italy. 
Paul and several other prisoners were placed in the custody of a Roman officer named Julius, a captain of the Imperial Regiment. Bethesda, this is not simply, to me, the reading of history. This is showing us so clearly this morning that God, many times, is doing so much behind the scenes of your life and of my life that we have no idea what all he is doing to be your protector, to be your guard, to be your help in times of trouble. We praise him for the stuff that we do see, but this ought to awaken, awaken within all of us this morning that the need that we need to even praise him for the things that we don't see that he's doing. We walk around with our arrogance as if we've got this all together and we're in control and we're in charge of what's happening. All the while we have no idea everything that God has done just to set your path straight. And all that Paul says is this. Words spoken through him by the Holy Spirit. He says, I appeal to Caesar. And he's essentially saying this, send me to Rome. And Festus says, all right, go to Rome. That's where you're going to go. And meanwhile... I love this picture. At the same time this plan is developed to send Paul to Rome, there's these guys sitting behind a bush someplace, waiting hour after hour after hour because they've got their plan and they've got all their weapons needed to do the job right on Paul. And there they sit waiting for him to come and they have no idea that the plan has been interrupted by a but God moment. Because Paul has set sail for Italy, all because the Holy Spirit told him to say, I appeal to Caesar. And in that little parenthesis that says there's an ambush to kill you, it doesn't even get a chance to lay a hand on him because God has already given him the path that he's supposed to take. So you have Festus who wants him in Jerusalem unaware of the ambush. You have men setting the ambush, which Paul knows nothing about. And death is waiting for him. And here's what I want us all to remember today. The day, dear friend, that you become a Christian, the day you said yes to Jesus, the day you decided to surrender to his lordship and give your life to him, there are many things that come against you. Can I get an amen to that? Whoever sold you the bill of goods to become a Christian and everything will be rosy from that point on that you'll go tiptoeing through the tulips. Those of you old enough to remember Tiny Tim. that Whoever told you that was wrong because the minute you become a Christian, you get a red, wriggle red dot on your back that the enemy is targeting you to destroy you and to kill you. Many things will come against you, but there is a God who is for you. Though there are forces against you. Come on, put your hands together and bless him for that today. If God be for us, who can be against us? While death was waiting for Paul, God was working on his behalf. In church, I'm convinced that God shields us from so much. I, I, I feel like God sometimes wants to say, Dan, you don't even want to know what all I've done to protect you today. And God's reminding us that he's going to see to it. He's going to take care of it. He's going to be working on our behalf even when we don't have an idea. You may be driving down Beach Street, getting stopped by that eternally long train as you're in your hurry to get to Sammy's Barbecue. That's where I'm going when I go down Beach Street. And you think it's the devil messing up your plans because that train came and it takes forever, but it just might be God. 
I hate to be this simplistic about it, but it's the truth. You have no idea that a diverted plane that was supposed to be at DFW to take you to a certain place, to the destination you thought you were going at a certain time, may be God saying, no, I need you on another plane at another time. It all feels to you like an inconvenience set in place by the devil. But it may very well be God saving you from the ambush that has been devised for you. I have to believe that God is doing things on my behalf even when I don't see it. And I'm not sensitive to it and I have no clue what's going on. I have to believe as I think about our missionaries who serve in very treacherous areas. Missionaries we faithfully support. They have no idea the times God has protected them from satanic activity and witchcraft which can be so prevalent in so many parts of the world. Let me just say this. We are not deists who believe there is a supreme being, even a creator, but who believe that he is detached from our human experience, that he has no involvement in our lives, that he is completely separated from us. We believe there is a God in heaven who sees all, who knows all, who loves us, and who is working every hour of every day, causing all things to work together for our good. I knew I was going to get in trouble time-wise when I told a personal story. Are you still with me? I'm going to give you two thoughts before I close today. But don't get excited. They're two very long thoughts, okay? <clears throat> I just said that to get ten more minutes out of you, okay? I think after reading this in Scripture today, church, we need to have a new awareness about thanking God for taking care of us in ways that we don't even know about. I think we need to add this to our reasons for praise. Because it's very easy for us to come into the house of God and say, Lord, I thank you for the raise I got this week or for providing that new job. I thank you, Lord. If that's happened for you, you should come to the house of God and give him thanks and praise. And we do that. And I think of some of you who have difficulty in even verbalizing your expression of praise. When our worship leaders say, come on, let's give them a hallelujah today. And, and you don't even know how to do that. Maybe you're new to this kind of expression or whatever. Many times they'll just say, I, just, I don't know what to say. You know what? Then say, God, I thank you for all the things you did for me that I didn't even see you do. Whatever it was. All the ways you protected me. That I had no idea the 20 things that God did just to get you in this building today. Just to get you sitting in a, a service of worship. Giving you the opportunity to lift your voice and thank him. You thought you just got in your car and drove here today. You might have waved your fist at a couple people on the way who cut you off. You don't realize it was God who got you here today. It's the simple things that God is involved with in our lives. This is going to get me in trouble. When our daughter Sheridan was little, <clears throat> I remember getting, picking her up after school one day. She asked me as we were leaving, Daddy, can we stop by McDonald's and get some French fries? Every American child has been raised on McDonald's French fries, right? And how many know this, whether or not it was a good idea or a bad idea? What baby girl wants, baby girl gets. Because... How many dads know they have a way of wrapping you right around their little finger? Well, that was certainly true in my case. So we go through the drive, and we had to wait an extra minute because they were, we hit that moment they were cooking fresh hot fries. Bless the Lord. They finally hand me the fries. 
which I handed over to her so I could then pay, but the anointed smell of those fries <laughs> filled the car. It was just too much. So I paid, and as I just started to pull away, I looked at her lovingly, sweetly, and I said, Sheridan, can Daddy have a French fry? And without batting an eye, she said in that precious little girl way, No, they're mine! Can I just tell you that went from my head to my toe when she said that? We hadn't left the parking lot of McDonald's, and I pulled that car right over to a parking place. And I looked at her, and I thought, I'm going to appeal one more time. Can I have just one? No! They're mine! And the more she denied me the fries, the more I wanted one. And finally, my sweet tactic had not worked very well. And the intensity, because the aroma is filling the car. So finally, in exasperation, I said to her, Do you know how you got those french fries? <laughs> now remember, I'm talking to, she was either five or six years old. And she looked at me like, what are you talking about? Now, if you remember back in those days, I was the music pastor here. Do you know that every morning I've got to get up and seek God and pray and ask God to help me write music and lead the music ministry of Bethesda Church? Do you know that once God gives me a song, I've got to stand with fear and trembling before the choir and musicians and the congregation and deliver what God has given to me? Do you know I've got to be sure we've got music old enough to please the old people and young enough to please the young people? And that's a battle I'm never going to win. Do you know that I've got to spend time with every soloist and help them get over the fact that they didn't get the last solo that they wanted? Do you know how many phone calls I have to make to wayward choir members who are flaking out on their commitment to music ministry? And then i got to take this check that the church gives me and i got to pay for the heating bill to keep you warm at night so that you won't freeze at night. She's looking at me like this. And then i got to buy these cute little socks to put on your feet that you can wear to school. And then i got to buy books that you can put in that cute little backpack you're wearing. And then I buy gas for the car that you're riding in. And I pay for the insurance that you can ride legally in this car. And sometimes we have just enough money left over for me to drive you through McDonald's and give you some french fries. So give me a french fry! Do you think money just grows on trees? Do you understand what all I have to do so that you can have a french fry? Give me the box. Just give me the whole box. Oh, church, there's a parallel here for us this morning. I hope you're getting it. Here's what happens. We forget how much God does for us. You go down your merry path thinking you're just doing your thing. And we forget that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's watching your back. He's watching my back. And he's doing more for us than we ever realize. Why in the world do you not walk in this house on Sunday morning with your mouth filled with praise forever? The very fact that he woke you up this morning. He got you here. And you're sitting here only by the grace of God. I got one more point. I got to catch my breath. This church wears me slap out.
You going to stay with me for my last point? It's this. Whoever has the keys decides when we leave. Whoever has the keys decides when we leave. Jesus made it clear with red letters in the book of Revelation when he says in the first chapter, he says, I am the living one. I died. Oh, but look, because I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. So if he has the keys, then he decides when we go and where we go. Church, he's the one who decides the date of your death. Not cancer, not an ambush, not a doctor, not a man with a gun pointed to my head. Because he holds the keys. Whoever has the keys decides when we go. And he's the one who says, nope, Paul, you're not going in an ambush. That's why I love the words of the 18th century evangelist George Whitfield, who said this. He says, I'm immortal until God calls me home. Which means this, you can't kill me until God says it's time. Because whoever has the keys decides when I leave. Which means this, I don't have to fear man, I only fear God. He has the keys and he's in charge. I told you that I flew this week from St. Louis on Tuesday, the day of that big storm. And let me tell you this, flying through that weather front was ferocious. So incredibly bumpy, you're flying all through the place. And it is amazing how many people can call on God when that plane hits a big air pocket. All I heard was, Jesus, help us. I thought I was on a Christian plane. I almost stood up and led some songs right there. When people think their life is on the line, it's amazing who they go to when they think it's about to end. Remember 9-11? Remember, remember how full the churches were that weekend after that? They think it's about over. But here's what I'm reminding us all today. Whoever has the keys, you who fear tomorrow, you who fear what's taking place in your body, you who are living absolutely in, in unbelievable fear for what's going to happen to you, can I just tell you this? Let it go. He holds the keys to death and the grave. It's up to him. Death does not determine, God will determine the day that you will die. Men were plotting an ambush for Paul, and he had no idea what was about to take place. Festus was going to send him that way. And he had the power to send him that way, right into his death. And all he had to say was this, yeah, go to Jerusalem. And Paul would have been killed right there. And here's what's really interesting to me as I start my first of several closings. When you do your research, you discover that the date of this event in the 25th chapter of Acts is A.D. 60. And so man was telling Paul, you're going to die in, a in 60 A.D. That's the date of your death. But remember, whoever has the keys decides when we leave. Festus 
didn't have the keys. The ambush set for Paul didn't have the keys. God had the keys. And God said, no, mm -mm, he's not going that way. Because there are, there are certain verses still that need to be written for my church to be encouraged. Like Hebrews 11, that faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I need the people to know that in March of 2016. So I've got the keys, Paul. You're not going to die in that ambush. God is in charge, and he has the best plan. But if Paul is killed in that ambush, church, then you could never say, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I could ever ask or think. If Paul is killed on that day, you would never have had the privilege of saying, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If Paul is killed on that day, if men have the keys instead of God, you can never have this promise to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If Paul dies on that day, you can never say, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You can never say any of those words because all of those verses are from epistles yet to be written after that time. There were seven more letters that Paul needed to write to encourage you and me and all of the saints down through the ages. They were letters that my dad preached 50 years ago at Spring Street Assembly of God Church, today known as Bethesda Temple. They are letters that have stood the test of time and have been the words of life to believers of every generation from then until now. And God said, no, Paul's not going to die in an ambush on that day. As he says, I have letters for him to write that need to be preached in March of 2016 in Costa Rica. Letters that will be preached in 2016 at Bethesda Community Church in Fort Worth, Texas. Because there's going to be a single mom who's sitting in the audience on that day. And she needs to be able to look at that verse in 2 Timothy that says, But God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a... So ambush... You're not taking Paul's life because I have the keys, God says, and I'll be deciding when he goes. We need those verses because there will be a young person in church who is trying to stay sexually pure but fighting every temptation who's going to need that verse that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if Paul is killed, you can't say those words. Those are called the prison epistles. And God says, I want those written at the end. So guess what? Ambush is called off. Because he's going to write Philippians, Ephesians, Hebrews, First and Second Timothy. He's yet to write Galatians and Colossians. So that on this day, in this place, church, we can quote those verses and say, thank God that you are covering me day by day by day. Put your hands together and bless the Lord. Come on, let's stand. Come on, let's stand, everybody. Musicians, somebody just say hallelujah. hallelujah. Come on, let's lift our hands and say, Lord, thank you for the things I do see. Come on, out of your mouth. And thank you for the ways that you have protected me down through the years, the things that you have done for me when I didn't even see. Come on, I can't hear you. Lift your voice. It's time to give our praise to God today. 
God, we declare in this place this morning that no man, no neighbor, no gang has the keys. Jesus has the keys. We declare this morning that disease does not have the keys. Our God has the keys. We declare this morning that cancer doesn't have the keys. We declare this morning that God is in control and that no weapon formed against us can ever prosper because Jesus holds the keys. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Bless your name, bless your name, bless your name. I don't know what we're going to sing. I hope it's something with victory in it. I hope it's something that's going to cause us to lift our voice this morning and exalt the name of, of our Lord. I had to share with you that testimony this week that took place because it so took me to a place of praise. It so took me to a place of thanksgiving to be able to look over, back over five decades of my life and say, look what the Lord has done. That's why this morning, it was no problem for me to stand before this choir and give every ounce of my being to say, surely goodness and mercy has followed me all of the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Bless the name of the Lord. Come on, church, bless him in this house today. Bless him in this house today. Bless him in this house today. Hallelujah.